Uh, good evening. Good morning, depending on your perspective. This is the Monday Morning Analyst. My name is Luke Thomas. Uh, it is Monday, September 21st, 2015. Today on the podcast, just one event to get to, really just one card, a main card to get to, uh, Bellator Dynamite 1 or Bellator 142, depending on how you want to uh, use various forms of nomenclature. Um, this podcast has three parts. Part one, opening statement or opening overview. Part two, a breakdown of the technical action. And then part three, a very brief look ahead. Uh, 30 minutes or less is what we try to usually fit this window into. I appreciate everyone watching. You can follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. So uh, as you know, or if you follow any of the um, coverage on MMA fighting, I was in attendance for Bellator Dynamite 1. It was in San Jose. I've talked about other things about the show, but let's quickly just sort of get to part one here, the opening statement, as we review the technical action and, and, the, and the contests that were there. From a, from, a, from a technical overview, I would say that the big takeaway uh, that I have was that there was nothing really outstanding to point to. There wasn't a lot of back and forth. There were some high water marks, of course. There was the submission by Josh Thompson. There were some things that we saw in the glory bout between Zach Mikasa and Salo Cavallari, but there just wasn't like, there wasn't mad scrambles. There wasn't like a Frankie Edgar versus Tyson. Um, um, God, now I'm blanking. Um, hold on, I have to get this right. Frankie Edgar. Reason Tyson Chandler's coming to my brain, but it's not. It's hang on. Tyson Griffin. There we go. It's not like a back and forth like that. And so as a consequence, um, you saw some limited moments of brilliance and flash, but and then this leads into sort of one of my criticisms of the event. Generally, it it was good, it was fine, it was okay, but it it, it didn't have enough. And I think that what you've seen from Bellator, and the reason why it's been like that is because one of the major improvements they've made over the Rebney era was imagination, was scale, was ambition and grandeur. And I think they've brought that to some extent um, to Bellator. But I think what they're still lacking a little bit is um, they just haven't quite had enough emphasis or at least ability to grow upon the side of the sport where you, you can say as a hardcore fan, man, look at these two guys competing at a very high level that are really well matched. And this really sort of is a strong technical display. And that's always going to be a challenge when so many of the best fighters are in the UFC, but it's not an impossible one, particularly at lighter weight classes. And I just feel like you're getting moments of brilliance, but you're not getting these like, these like really true highs that, that a rival brings out of you. And so, this podcast, I don't think, will be too terribly long because there are some things to highlight, of course, some greater moments. But if I have one criticism, it was, it's it's that it's that there wasn't. I guess I got bit by a mosquito. I apologize. I guess I guess that part was just really lacking, you know. Um, so 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 let's get to some of the action now. Now that part one is done. Part two, a review of the technical action that we saw in the cage. Um, I'll pull up the results here, and we'll go from the main event down. Um, yeah, here we go. So, uh, the event took place, as I mentioned before, the SAP Center. I didn't get any, uh, damn, I should have asked. I totally forgot to ask for attendance numbers and live gate. I will see if I can get those information uh, for you. So, the main card was really long. We're not going to get to all of them, um, just because there's no point. But let's start with the main event. Liam McGeary uh, taking on Tito Ortiz. Liam McGeary winning at 441 of the first round via an inverted triangle choke. I thought this was actually a pretty interesting fight, because Ortiz didn't look all that bad, you know? Um, looked limited ultimately, but not, not terrible. He actually landed a couple good right hands early in that first round on, 
uh, McGeary, although I think there was a consequence of McGeary being sort of very much leaning over his own waist um, to be prepared for any kind of shot, you know, so he can get his arms down and, and protect his hips and his legs. So kind of in a little bit more vulnerable than he ordinarily would have been, but nevertheless, some good right hands. So the takedown happened. How did it happen? So if you, if you notice what he tries to do is he tries to parry a shot, Tito does, and then he tries to shoot for a high crotch, like, like, uh, Almost, almost, almost like a duck under to a high crotch a little bit. They just to throw McGeary by him as he comes under. And uh, he gets stuffed. He gets stuffed on the attempt. Yeah, I did get bit by mosquito. I can feel it. But as he gets stuffed in the attempt, McGeary does something that you don't see Lawal do later, which is why Lawal was able to stuff most of Linton Vassell's takedowns, and McGeary wasn't. So McGeary stuffs it, right? But there's a moment where he's kind of like this, and he's kind of over Ortiz. And that's okay to be initially, but when you're over Ortiz and you're getting your hips back, right? What you got to do is you got to get your hands and your arms in front of theirs. And then you got to create separation. Because if I'm just over the top, a lot of things can happen. If you go too far over the top, they can lift you and do what's called an, an Iranian or an Iranian lift, depending on your perspective. And they can come out the back door. They can turn you over. They can, they can get you that way. That's one problem. If you go too far over the top... But what happens in this case is Ortiz goes, I believe, for the left hand for the high crotch or maybe to a high crotch to a single. He couldn't finish it because the first stage of McGeary's takedown defense was good. But what happens after that? So McGeary is sitting on top, but he doesn't get his arms in front. As a consequence, what you see Ortiz does is he has kind of like an underhook a little bit on one side, and he takes a step with his left foot. So now he's got one knee on the ground, and now he's got one foot on the ground. Well, if you've got a foot on the ground, what can you do? You can drive off of it. So he drives McGeary at an angle, almost holding the other side elbow, driving one way, blocking the other, reaches down, then grabs the ankle, and then just turns him over, just like a steering wheel. Takes a step up, drives at an angle, blocks one side from elbow now to ankle, and then turns him over, and then gets him to go down on the ground. And from there, he did some interesting stuff, almost locking of a gift wrap, you know, McGeary using high hips, passing the hand underneath and holding it there. Didn't get a whole lot of ground and pound off, but still, you know, uh, not bad. There's a moment there where McGeary goes for an omoplata and then a triangle setup. That was kind of interesting. And it fails. Why does it fail? Well, that omoplata doesn't really, it wasn't really truly on there. Uh, McGeary is good about getting his, his legs up high and around the neck, but it wasn't a lot of these submissions. People think it's just about getting your hips up, and that's really important to do, but you also have to control their posture at the same time. So it's like two forces meeting. They got to come down and you got to get up and then you got to get an angle around them. It's a, it's a lot of how that works. Um, if you don't, you're, you know, you're just bringing your legs up and you're not getting the right angles that you, know, you need to be, you need to be on your shoulders. A lot of times your hips have got to be in the air. And so he didn't quite get that, but it was interesting. And you you ask, why would you go from omoplata to a triangle? The omoplata and the triangle and the arm bar, these are super related for submissions because if one fails, you have another. And if one, they escape one, you have another, you can chain all of these together. So he tries to go for an omoplata, pushing Ortiz one direction. Ortiz wants to go back into the omoplata because you don't want to get rolled, right? So what do you do? You drive back into it a little bit. And as a consequence, as, as Ortiz tries to right the ship a little bit, McGeary uses that to let go and then try and wrap around the triangle, but Tito read it and blocked it and then actually was able to pass. Um, but just so you understand, like the omoplata and the triangle and the armbar from guard are very, very related. So how does the final submission works? The final submission works very interestingly. The left leg of McGeary is the most important thing to watch through the whole entire thing. 
So what McGeary does is he's able to swing his left leg all the way back and around in front of Ortiz's face and then clamp down a little bit on the back of the neck. But what he don't, doesn't have for a typical arm bar is you have their arm between both of your legs. And what's happening is, and a lot of folks don't realize this, your legs in an arm bar are doing a lot of work. People think it's your hips and your upper body doing a lot of work and your hands doing a lot of work in terms of securing it, and they are. But the, but the legs do a lot of work. And what folks don't realize is the one leg that's over the back of the neck needs to be crunched down, crunched down. You need to, you need to be hurting their posture with it, okay? They should feel it on the back of their neck. Uh, and if they're not, your arm bar is not tight, and they can escape rather easily. So you see that, he gets a little bit of that. And I mean, we talked about this before, about having the flex in your ankle, right? So if, you're, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you've got an arm bar, and yes, you're crunching, but you're pointing your toes, you don't have the kind of flex you have. You want to have your toes pointed to the back. You want to have your, your feet come up as far as possible, not out. So it puts the pressure on the back of the neck. And then the other part that's interesting about it is you're supposed to have the other leg behind their back too. And what the other leg is usually doing, usually the other leg is not just clamped down on their back. So you're clamping down on their neck. You're clamping down on their back. I mean, you're bringing everything down. The other leg might be bumping into the back of the shoulder. So you can get them to off balance more. Remember, if, if someone is sitting perfectly good posture and you're working from guard, so they're in front of you or here, this is you, you're on your back, you got them in your full guard, and they've got perfect posture. There's no arm bar there. They can even stick their arm out. There's no arm bar there, or at least it's almost impossible to get. you got to get them over you. you got to get them not just on top of you, but even over you, and then you got to get underneath. Remember, they got to come down, you got to come up. And so he doesn't have that on the second leg. McGeary doesn't. So, so Tito's able to stand, and it looked like he almost tapped to me, if I'm being honest. But he basically shrugs him off. Tries to throw a right hand, okay? And I think it connects or gets close to connecting. But then what happens again? McGeary's left leg comes up in front of Ortiz's face. But Ortiz is thinking, well, wait a second. My arm's not in between here. My arm's on the outside. I can stack this guy like this. I can stack this guy and rotate. I can stack this guy and push him over. I can stack this guy and start punching him. I can stack this guy and move to leg drag. I mean, you can just stack and do all kinds of things. So he kind of just leaves his hand hanging out here. His, I believe his right hand, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, right, his right hand. That's the one he was punching with, and then it goes back because it's not in between his legs anymore. So he pulls it out. But McGeary still got basically the same position, just no arm in the middle. One leg over the back of the neck and one leg kind of on the ribs. So what does he do? He takes his hand, his left hand, wraps around and grabs Ortiz's bicep and pulls it into him, or tries so much to say, and pulls it into him. Then the other leg on top stays on top but clamps down really hard, and the one underneath, that's all like, like shin to ribs, comes out, and then he secures the triangle. So, so if he had actually a full regular arm bar where it was one leg on the back of the ribs, one leg on the back of the neck, it would be harder to lock up the triangle because you have to get the bottom outside leg all the way back underneath. But because he didn't have that full leg there, he's able to just shoot it out and then connect the two. Uh, and that's how he was able to do it. So it was just good, you know, good, good awareness, good presence of mind. It's obviously something that he's hit because he didn't just try a triangle. He secured the arm first. And then you see him clamp down on the back of the leg to get Tito's posture even more bent over. Um, and I guess Tito just thought he was comfortable because there was no arm in between. But you just pulling the arm out and not – you can't just hang out in that position. I've guys, I've, you know, you guys know this in jujitsu. I've told you this a million times. You can't just hang out in spots. I mean, there's a couple spots where you can hang out a little bit, but in those transitions like that, you got to be moving one way or the other. I mean, you don't have to rush things, 
but you can't stall things either. You got you gotta you gotta kinda have a movement and a pace to things. And I think he thought he was just safe there. McGeary left leg in front of the head, clamps down, grabs the arm, drives the other leg through, and then secures the triangle. Nicely done. Uh, so Phil Davis looks phenomenal. I'm going to go actually a little bit out of order because I just want to talk about what Phil Davis did. Now I'll go in order. All right, so Phil Davis defeats Francis Carmel. We all know why Carmel was in the fight uh, via KO at 2.15 of the very first round. So this is really interesting to me how he did this. Carmel was doing like fake hand wave things. I'm not sure what all that was. I mean, if he was trying to distract him, it was okay. It was fine to get you to look at the hands because he was really only going with the kicks, but okay, whatever. Well, the way he got him was, you know, Carmel was fading one way and the other, right? And Carmel was initially doing the pressuring, but it wound up being that, that Davis was doing the pressuring. And I know that a lot of people object to the idea that if you're moving forward, you're automatically winning the fight. And I do too. I don't think if you're moving forward, you're automatically winning the fight. But I think if you're moving forward, a lot of times in MMA, you're winning the fight. I just kind of think it's an inevitability. There are a lot of circumstances where that's not true. But I think on balance, you probably are. Here's a perfect example of that. Because I don't think that Carmon was really very expertly moving side to side. I think he may have been a little bit unaware of the dimensions of that circle as opposed to like an octagon. I mean, he's fought in the uh, Bellator before, but still, it takes a little while to get used to. So what happens is he fades one way to his own left. Then he fades back right. So this is when Davis reads it automatically. Davis is sort of centered here. Carmon is going this way, back and forth, back and forth. And they're, I mean, they're following each other, yeah? So Carmon briefly goes to Davis's right, and then he fades left. Davis, you can see the light turn on. Davis fakes like he's throwing a right. Carmon is circling, or no, excuse me. So Carmon is already circling. Davis fakes like he's throwing a right, like he's trying to catch him as he moves away to get him, to get him confused. And then... What, what does Carmon do? Carmon puts the hand out to parry it and then brings his own hand up in defense, which is the correct thing to do. Here's the problem with that. What Davis recognizes is that I'm not going to chase him at an angle. I'm going to chase him. I'm going to cut the cage off. I'm going to go forward. So as Carmon is fading to his own right to the left of Davis, this first punch is just to get him to open up a little bit. So if he's here, there's not much there. If he if he's even got a better guard, he's he, he's got some way of blocking the shot. But what he does is he gets Carmon fading, or as he 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 uses Carmon fading to one direction, so that Carmon is going like this. But Davis isn't going like this. Davis is going straight. Watch Davis's motion. He doesn't try to punch at an angle. He punches straight forward. So he fakes with the right, kind of gets Carmon to do this. Because Carmont does the right thing here. If the punch had come at a wide hook, there's something blocking. But he wasn't trying to get him with a wide hook. He wasn't trying to go to the outside and around. He was trying to come straight forward. So what happens? Carmont moves right in the right into it, just like this. This is sort of this is what I mean, like like new from Davis. Like what he did to Emmanuel Newton. Okay, that just sort of shows that there's a dearth of talent in in uh, Baltimore. There's a dearth of talent in Bellator and that Davis kind of caught up to him a little bit. Uh, or I should say Davis has sh shown that there's like a big gap. But that that from Davis is also kind of new. And you could say, well, Carmon, you know, what level is he? You know, he had a decent run in the UFC for a little while. And I don't think he's a terrible fighter. And certainly not on the level of Phil Davis. But, I mean, these are new wrinkles, like just the accuracy of it all and, 
And again, he's using it on a lesser fighter, so you can say, well, that's still a lesser fighter, and that's true, but I just never saw those kinds of tools before anyway. Most of the time, his striking was just kind of like a little pot shotty, a little bit to facilitate other aspects of his wrestling or his jiu-jitsu, and, and not here. He, 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 he expertly uses another fighter's movement to drive at a different angle and catch him even when the fighter knows a punch is coming from that side. Carmont had it up, but he wasn't trying to hit him here. He's trying to hit him here, and he got it right on the money. A brilliant, brilliant job by Phil Davis. So then we have uh, Sela Cavallari taking on Zach Mikasa. Zach Mikasa loses. Uh, the scores were 48-46, 48-46, and then 47 all. This was a kickboxing buff that went five rounds. I'm not going to break this down round by round uh, for a number of different reasons. Here's just my general thoughts on the fight. So, number one, I'm not sure about those gloves. I think those are 12-ounce gloves and not 10-ounce, and I think they made a huge difference. Number one, when you get their guard up with those gloves, it was really kind of impossible for anyone to get through. Number two, I saw Cavallari. You know, the gloves were probably a little bit heavier. I mean, they were definitely heavier. They are two ounces heavier on each side. But what you saw was they were able to parry from even a wider distance, right? There's just so much extra mass on them that they're able to parry in tight, able to parry outside, and it just disrupted a lot of offense there. There wasn't a lot you could really do with it. So I I, I found it hard for both guys to score. I wouldn't call Zach Mwikasa a headhunter because I thought he put on a pretty, you know, uh, full display relative to his previous history. But he definitely is a guy that, you know, has uh, a ferocious knuckle game. And, you know, I, I think he prefers to attack the head when possible. And, you know, credit to Cavallari for having good defense. But I really feel like those gloves kind of added an extra dimension there that they maybe weren't supposed to be there. I asked him about a post-fight, and he didn't say there was anything to it. But just they didn't pass the eye test. I don't know. I could be wrong, of course. If you think differently, by all means, let me know. But. I don't know. It just didn't seem right to me. So there was that was a big problem. So I liked some of the things that Mukasa was doing. He was trying to go do, doing a ton of body work, and not just single shot into the body, doubling up to the body, double left hooks, left and then right. Or what he would do is he would go left, right, get the hands to come down just a little bit, and then go with a left uppercut. You saw a couple of that a couple of times. That was nice. Cavallari, I thought, had a good game too, which was, and this was another problem with the gloves. The gloves were so big that he was able to, even when he was getting backed up, he could still just, you can watch him. You can see him just watch Mikasa. Mikasa thinking, well, I can't get through the head. I'm going to go to the body. Cavallari just eats it, and then boom, boom, and then would kick out the post leg. So Cavallari would wait for it, knowing that the body shots were coming, tense up, eat him, throw a one-two, and then kick out the post leg. Um, and the whole time, though, it, it, to me, like this fight was a reaction to like the first fight, where if you saw their first fight, which was the second fight in a tournament, I think from Glory 18, you saw Cavallari sort of bide his time, circle on the outside, using leg kicks to try and slowly slow Mwikasa down, lower his defense, get him tired. But that third round did get him tired. I think 20 seconds in, goes up high and tries to catch him. I think what you saw from Mwikasa this time, much better defense, checking a lot of kicks, you know, bringing him high, bringing him outside as he needed to. So not just, not just checking from one position, checking side to side, checking high, elbow to knee, checking low on the outside. Um, uh, blocking a bunch of shots as well, having a good guard himself up top. Like, I saw a lot of improvement from Zach Mikasa. It just, the the talents he has didn't really get, you know, put on full display except for the body work. And again, I think his body work, I think, he, I think he likes doing it. I think he punches hard, but there's just so many problems with it. So who did I score the fight for? Because there was some issue about the points being taken. And by the way, 
I keep saying this, glory is not Muay Thai. There's a lot of differences. The clinching rule is totally different. You can't even clinch with two hands in glory. One hand, one strike. That's it. You get to clinch one time with one hand. You can fire shot, and then you got to let go. So you can't do one hand and wrap an arm. You can't do two hands. You can't do any of that stuff. It's totally not allowed. And the idea is you want to facilitate stuff. You can't do sweeps. And then, of course, unlike Muay Thai, you can do all kinds of unorthodox strikes that they don't allow for. So to me, it's like it's not it's not Muay Thai. If you have a fighter constantly clinching all the time, here, 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 as he's doing, slowing down Muay Kasa, you can say, well, that's fighting smart. And under a different rule set, it is fighting smart. In this rule set, he should have had multiple points taken. The only issue I had with the point being taken was um, he got no warning for it the first time. That's it. But like, was was Cavallari? I'm not saying cheating because you know, I don't I, I don't know how, to what extent he's really familiar with the rule sets, but it was a problem. Um, okay. So then you have Josh Thompson taking on Mike Bronzulis, and Josh won via arm triangle choke in the third round. I'm not going to go through all three rounds, but just that third round submission, I'll walk through here. So what, what happens? So Thompson in, gets pushed against the fence by Bronzoulas. He has a left underhook. In the scramble, he kind of steps out, steps out to create a pocket because if someone's pressuring you and you can step, but you still have the underhook, you can create a pocket and they can follow you. So he does that. He eventually gets the right underhook and gets double underhooks. So from there, what you see Bronzoulas do is he gets his two hands. He just to push his chin away like this. Josh has none of it. I can't fight you one-on-one if you're pushing my chin away. I can't fight you in a straight line, but I can turn at an angle and I can break it. So what does he do? Josh steps around to his own right, gets the elbow to go past, and now he's behind you. So then what does he do? He gets a pickup, pops, sips, drives him up, and then pulls him, and then, you know, shoulder in, drives him down. Okay, so that's all pretty standard. But what does Bronzulis do? Now, I don't know if he was hurting the slam or not. I think there might be a little bit to that. But Bronzulis takes his his he gets slammed this way. Thompson is here on him. He takes his hand and he posts it on the mat, right? As he rolls to his side. Now you don't want to be flat on your back. You want to be on your side. But first of all, you want to face them, not turn away, unless you have some sort of you know Ben Askren funky style escapes. Let me do something real quick. Okay, fixed. So you want to turn to face him. You don't want to face away. Facing away is bad news, man. You get your back taken, you can get hurt. Face him, right? Uh, more times than not. And he puts his hand down. So we've talked about this on this podcast before. Folks, your elbow, if it's up here, if you've created space here, you're in trouble, man. You're in trouble. That's why double underhooks are so bad. Because Josh gets, look, Josh gets double underhooks on him. And Bronzilla tries to get his hands here and then drive away, but it doesn't work. And then and then Josh comes around the back of the elbow and gets behind him. If your arms are out here, this is the problem. Remember, you're weak out here. You're strong in here. This is where you're strong. Elbow pinned to your ribs. You're strong here. Okay, and you're not vulnerable. This is why you all. This, fighting is so much a fight for inside control in the inside space. Thompson sees it immediately because I think Bronzilla's got hurt or maybe rocked. So I think he put his hand down for stability to try and scramble or to step up, or, or do something. Thompson sees it immediately. The elbow comes up. Here's, the, here's Bronzulis' elbow. So what does Thompson do? Thompson brings the arm right around the neck, dives his head underneath behind the back of the elbow, which is wide open at this point, because he's not... It'd be one thing if you're open elbow on your, on your back. That's still not good. He's open elbow on his side. On his side. Thompson's like, you're just giving me the submission. Dives underneath the armpit and around the back of the neck. Gable grips, 
puts his head down, squeezes, and that's all she wrote. So then we have a couple fights I'm just not even going to get into. Paul Daly defeating Fernando Gonzalez, 29-28, 29-28, 30-27. I'm not going to get into it because Paul and Fernando did a couple interesting things, but it's not really a real, a real glory bout, and so for that reason I feel uh, not compelled to break it down as such. Uh, and then Carrie Ann Taylor Melendez defeating Hadley Griffith, 30-27, and then 30-26. Um, I like her very much. She was a very friendly person. Uh, I met Gilbert Melendez. He's a very friendly guy. I met his father. Could not be more friendly, but this was so deeply uncompetitive that I also don't feel a need to, to say a whole lot about it. All right, so that brings us to Phil Davis's other fight against Emmanuel Newton. And there were a number of takedowns in this that you know were interesting, trips and, and uh, you know drags. There's a lot of times where you'd see Newton almost put himself in like folk-style wrestling positions on all fours, and then you see what a lot of folk-style guys do. They lean forward and sag off the side attacking you know a couple of the, the the support structures you're putting up there you saw a couple of things like that from um from from phil davis but what i really want to focus in on is that kimura that kimura was nasty bro whoa that was super super nasty i mean that thing was a I, I, i'd be i'd be if they came back and said oh you know um Newton's Newton was fine after the fight, but we found out he tore his labrum. Wouldn't surprise me at all. When I tore my labrum, it didn't hurt too bad at first. So I was doing I I, I was doing decline bench press, and I felt something like just pop a little bit, but not didn't hurt. And I finished the set, and it was okay, and whatever. And it was only over time where it got worse and worse. But like you know, the shoulders they're sensitive, man, and and a lot of bad things can happen to them. And he put this thing to its structural limit. So what does he do? First of all, Davis does such an awesome job. It's something that maybe you guys you can't appreciate if you've never trained or you never rolled. If you're trying to hunt someone's arm, okay, a lot of times they know it because there's a lot of different setups, yes, for the Kimura, but there's a couple like telltale signs. And the interesting part about Davis is that like he, he disguises them two ways. And the first way is the most important way, which is Bro, Davis's pressure on top must be excellent. And by that, I mean it's probably suffocating, but not so suffocating because you see guys move underneath. So what I'm pointing out is it's probably very, 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 very good. But it's very good to the point where it frees both of his hands to move. That's rare. That's rare. Okay, if your pressure is so good where I can sit on top of you and I can move both my hands, let me explain something to you, folks. He is doing something. He, he must be awesome at it. It's hard to do. It's very hard to do. What you often see is like um, a, a lot of blocking going on more than pressure from side control. So, for example, what one guy might do for side control, and this may be a variety of different attacks, they may get on top and they may pressure you, but what they'll do is if you're cross body here, so your head's here and your body's this way, what they might do is over the top of your body, they might bring their elbow to your hip, right, to your outside hip, like they're almost driving them into you. Right, you might find that. So what does that do? That reduces your hip movement. Okay, there's pressure on you, but you're also just creating a structure behind which they can't move a lot. You might find that. What you might find is a lot of other guys do something where they like they'll pin you with their shoulder and they'll bring their arm around to one side, especially in gi where they can go underneath and you can grab the gi pants. So now I'm just putting my arm around one side. I'm not like bringing it to the ground, not driving my hip down, but I'm bringing it around. And so now I've cut off this space around your your backside and your hip where you just can't move as much. That's actually one of my favorite tactics. Phil Mother F and Davis is so balanced on, on top and so heavy. 
both hands are wide open. Now, not wide open. He's not doing this, but he has he has range to move. That is, I mean, tremendous, tremendous balance, tremendous pressure. Um, kind of mesmerizing, actually. I'm going to go back and watch and see if I can pick up any extra details. But if you see someone doing that, wow, okay? So what does he do for the first one? He takes his, so he has Newton, he's here, Newton's head, body, and legs. He takes his own arm, comes over the top, and he drives his own elbow into the top and the outside of Newton's arm. Um, oh, I missed a detail in the Ortiz-McGeary thing. Whatever. Drives it to the outside of the arm. So what does he do? That He allows him to bring the arm close to him so he can and isolate it so he can grab the wrist down here, which he does. Okay? Very, very nice. He's, he's essentially creating for, isolation for hand control. So he moves to um, top side. In other words, he gets locks up the Kimura, and then he gets Newton underneath his legs. He's Phil Davis is on his knees. His head is essentially under the junk of Phil Davis. And what you're trying to do is, with that Kimura, people think you're just trying to rip it across their body. You're not. The ideal way to do it is to bring their elbow to your chest. So I've got the Kimura here. I want to bring your elbow to my chest, and I want to go up and then just rotate my body. I'm not ripping it across with my arms. People think that that's the case. I'm not. If I can create a, if I can attach you to me, now I'm making your biomechanics, which are not meant to be attached to my biomechanics, I'm going to do that. I'm going to just rotate. He realizes underneath he can't get through. And what do you see Emmanuel Newton do? He goes back to his back. Now, that's a desperation move going to your back. You don't ever really want to be there. But, boy, that's a lot better than having your arm snapped, Okay. And the best way to get down is people think you just rip up and then rotate. You actually drive down, then you come up. Why? Because they're going to be gripping on something. So if you're gripping and you don't want your hand to go this way, how do I get your hand off? I drive it, then I rip it, right? Because now I've got, I, I took it off. See so you guys can see that, yeah? If, I, if I'm pulling this way and it stops here I'm, and you want, it, you want it out, right? And I hold this, how do you get it out? You drive it up. And then you create an angle out. That's how you do it. So you see him, you see him pumping it like, like that a little bit. But then Emmanuel Newton gets down. Okay. So he tries it once, it doesn't work. So Newton tries to stand. Uh, by the way, you're always supposed to stand. You drive one underhook here, and then you stand on the opposite leg. So if I, if I drive a right underhook, I'm going to stand with my left foot. I'm going to get my back to the fence, and then I'm going to pummel in and do my thing. So he tries to do it the right way. Again, Phil Davis's balance and pressure is not so okay so what does he do he sees the underhook coming it's actually the, it actually is the right underhook he lets him get the right underhook he gets him he gets he lets it pass right here here comes the right arm underneath and what does he do he actually brings his arm over the back of the head gives it to him stand but the problem is you can't stand because he didn't really have a good angle for it because the pressure was so bad so he's kind of got if you're if you're if you're you want to be hitting the angle, and you kind of want to be postured up. You want to be turning and getting your weight under you, creating a base. He was kind of just reaching across, like, his body a little bit, like he, uh, Phil Davis's body. He didn't quite have any structure underneath him. He didn't have a lot of good base because of that. So Phil Davis just lets the arm go across, comes across, and now what's he going to do? He's going to pin it and grab the wrist, whoop, and gets it again. Then what he does is you see him try and jump to full guard. Credit to Emmanuel Newton. Emmanuel Newton reads it. And the reason why you can tell he reads it is because when Davis tries to lock up the full guard to finish the Kimura, 
his rear end was past the point. Like, if you have a good full guard, it should go on their lower back, right? Your leg should cross over their lower back. It crossed behind his knees because Newton read it and, and tried to tried to get his hips out. Didn't quite go far enough. So what does he do? He keeps trying to get his rear end out and his legs out, and then he Granby rolls. What is a Granby roll? A Granby roll is you don't roll flat on your back. You actually roll with your hips in the air across your shoulders. And what that allows you to do is essentially just change the angle on any kind of attack or defensive movement instantly. You're rolling across your shoulders, not your back. And it's a big, big difference. He actually tried a Granby roll escape on a takedown earlier in the fight against uh, Davis, but wasn't worth talking about. So he Granby rolls here. The problem with the Granby roll was he was trying to change the angle and at least get his back down. So he got, he got out a little bit and got on his shoulders. So if I'm on my shoulders and my arm's behind me, there's a limit to how far my arm can go. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It was really bad, but at least there's something going on there. It's, it is, the ground is stopping you. The problem is Davis follows him. And as Davis follows him, he steps over his head, I believe, with uh, his own right leg. He steps over the head. If someone has you on an angle where your arm and there's space behind you, right, if, if I'm on the ground, there's no space behind me. But if I'm here and there's up, there's space for the arm to go. He creates that by following him and then steps over the head to control him. From Kimura, from side control, the best way to get someone is to step over the head and then create an open space behind their back for you to just wrench that son of a bee, which is what he does. Um, so so I admire the Granby role from Emmanuel Newton but it just wasn't enough. And Phil Davis following, and then as he follows, steps over the, the head, uh, you know, he gets him dead to rights. And that Kimura was nasty. He told me after the fact that uh, he, not, he, not, he not just screamed, but he tapped as well. So that was nice. And that happened at 439 of the first round. And then last but not least, Muhammad Wall defeated Linton Vassal uh, via unanimous decision, sort of, sort of because there's no scores announced uh, after two rounds. A lot of things Mo did nicely here that I really, really liked. Um, in terms of the striking. Um, so what you saw a lot of from Vassal was a couple of things. Number one, predictability in his striking, throwing a lot of one-twos or switching and then throwing a different kind of one-two or going back to one stance and then throwing a two-one. You saw a lot of that, but there wasn't a lot of uppercuts. Just wasn't a lot of mixing in there. A few, I mean, he landed some decent kicks, but a lot of those were blocked. That was one problem. It was sort of predictability and rehearsal of the offense. The second problem was you saw him, Oh, I should say three problems. The second one was he would throw, and you'd see him over his waist. Your your best balance is when everything is centered underneath you. The more you're over your own waist, that's like if think about it in judo. The more my weight is forward over my waist, the more you're going to go for a ride. And the more you're that way on striking, the the less you're able to have a defensive structure necessary to move or block. So Mo sees this over and over again. And then there's the third part, which is he would punch and didn't have the defensive responsibility to bring the hand back. Carmon may have gotten caught, but Carmon at least had this going on. He just didn't understand the angling process and got hit straight on as a consequence. Um, so from a switch stance, Mo was able to explode over the top of the right. So he, you see, you see, you see Vassal Paul with the left. Mo, Mo explodes over the right. Well, as he explodes over the right, he then creates an angle for the this side and then drove a left up the top. So that was nice from Mo. Um, uh, again, there was a time where uh, Vassal threw a, a right hand. Mo would step to the outside and then come back over the top of the left. You saw that a lot. Um, 
there's just a lot of that. There's no, it wasn't any like because the follow up from Mo was not the best I've seen from him, but just 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 stepping to an angle and then finding an opening because a guy is over his waist, a guy is punching and not bringing it back, or punching and bringing it back to his waist, not bringing it back up here, uh, and then throwing some sort of predictability stuff. So one, two, you know, one, two here. Uh, one, as I reach, you know, if you reach open like that, it's hard to retract more quickly. And Mo was seeing this over and over again and just popping him for it. So good job by Mo doing that. So the takedown, Mo gets caught with the takedown. It was kind of nice. Uh, Vassal gets under him. So you see what Mo tries to do. Mo tries to clamp underneath the belly of Vassal and then drive his weight down over the top of the neck to round the back. Think about doing a deadlift. When you do a deadlift, what are you doing? You're looking up. Your back is totally straight, right? And you stand, and your hands don't really move. They got to be balanced equally on both sides, and the back has to be like a—I mean, like a like a roof has to be straight. Okay. If you hunch your back, it, it, not only can you do damage, it's just hard to you know to, to to use the muscles correctly. And so, if your back is bent over, it's hard to lift someone. When your back is straight, that's when you get all the lifting done. That's why when you shoot, you want to shoot underneath so you can be like this. Uh, you you might be you might be down on a knee like Jordan Burroughs, but Jordan Burroughs gets his posture straight, strong back, yeah? So Mo tries to get a, to break that by gripping underneath the belly and then driving your hips down, creating a rounded back so that there's just not enough room. But credit to Vassal, Vassal still is able to pick him up and make it work and then almost scoops the legs. Mo stands and then gets, and then essentially just turns, turns, he corkscrews backwards into him gets behind the legs, and then does a pickup behind him and throws. Didn't quite work, only because Vassal's so tall. If you watch, Vassal actually lands on his hands and then just sort of converts to his back, so he didn't get the worst of it. Um, but, you know, Mo's a hell of a competitor. Fantastic job in, in sort of, you know, getting taken down and answering very quickly. I wonder, though, if that's where he actually tore his rib. I have checked in with him to see how he's doing. I haven't heard anything. So that's it for the, the technical action. There wasn't a whole lot more to get to for this one. Again, I thought it was a good effort promotionally from from the organization, but I didn't feel like we we just saw a lot of excellent fighting, uh, aside from what Phil Davis was able to do. Um, but maybe next time. All right. So what's coming up next? Two cards you want to pay attention to. Uh, Bellator 143 is actually Friday. Joe Warren taking on L.C. Davis. Joey Beltran taking on Kendall Grove. Emmanuel Sanchez, Henry Corrales, and then Everton Teixeira, the former K1 great, is going to take on Vinicius Queiroz, who. Um, was cut from UFC after a very long time. A couple fights in the undercard to note. Ryan Couture taking on Nick Gonzalez, Chase Gormley, Dan Charles, and then a big one. Darian Caldwell taking on Sean Bunch. Sean Bunch, former Olympic alternate. And then you have Darian Caldwell, one of the best wrestlers ever out of uh, NC State. Um, a big, big important fight for these two. Big important fight. So keep an eye out for that. That'll be on Friday night, I believe. Uh, and then you have, um, then you have, hang on. Wrong event here. All right. And then you have on Saturday, I think Sunday in Japan, you have UFC Barnett, excuse me, UFC Fight Day Barnett versus Nelson. So that'll be in Japan. I think this is on this is on Fight Pass. I don't know. Whatever the case may be. Um, Barnett versus Nelson, Musasi versus Uriah Hall, uh, Kyoji Horiguchi versus Chico Kamis. That's kind of big. Uh, Mizugaki versus Roop, throwback to WEC. Kid Yamamoto is back, taking on Matt Hobar. Uh, Mizuto Hirota is taking on Teruto Ishihara. Undercard, not so money. There's one to pay attention to. Katsunori uh, Kukuno taking on Diego Brandao. 
and then Kaito Nakamura taking on Li Jiang Lang. Uh, that that that's kind of interesting. Nick Hine is back, and so it's Raging Cajun uh, Johnson against uh, Noyuki Kotani. Um, but you know, a lot of sort of so-so fights there. So that's it. I appreciate everyone's time. I have no idea how long I've gone. I didn't have my timer with me. Uh, thanks everyone for watching. Sorry we came so late, but there's just a lot going on today with MMA Hour and I have my own radio show. And um, at least I got it in, right? I guess. Either way, thank you so much for watching. Oh, and good news, you guys that don't believe me, I know the new Monday Morning Analyst is just weeks away. New production, new editing, new new graphics, everything. So this is one of the. I don't know if this is the last show you'll ever see like this, but it's one of the last few for sure, for sure. So. Thanks, everyone, and until next time, enjoy the fights.